0: I'm Brian Finley. This is Music for a While from West Bend. Welcome. Today, Barb Hobart and I discuss one of Canada's cultural icons, Glenn Gould. Now, I should start by saying that the music you will be hearing on this podcast was not performed by Glenn Gould. But of course, I encourage you to seek out the many fascinating recordings of this amazing and enigmatic pianist, writer, broadcaster, philosopher, you name it. No, the music you will hear today was all performed, created, and recorded by yours truly. And I should mention that in tribute to our subject today, I thought it might be interesting to not only include recordings of myself at the piano, but also to explore a few technological experiments, which I will explain along the way. I hope you'll find it at least amusing, if not illuminating. (laughs) So first, a piece of music that to me is Glenn Gould. The opening of the Aria from Bach's Goldberg Variations, performed and recorded here in my living room on my Yamaha keyboard. Was the aria from the Goldberg Variations by J.S. Bach played not by Glenn Gould but by Brian Finley. <laughs> I think it's probably pretty important to say that but you know it's a very uh, a magnificent piece of music and I think in a lot of ways really turned the public around uh, to take notice of this uh, incredible person recording the works of Bach. I first heard Glenn Gould play Bach publicly at his memorial service at St. Paul's Bloor Street in Toronto and I remember at the end of the service they closed the entire service off with the recording of his the aria from the Goldberg Variations and it was absolutely spellbinding and I just that concept of leaving such an amazing legacy through recording was such an incredible contribution. Anyway uh, uh, I'm joined as I say by Barb Hobart today. Good morning Barb. Good morning. How are you doing this morning?
1: I'm fine. I have a question for you, though, before we even get started. Sure. So when you attended the service, which version of his Goldberg variations did they play? His oh, later one or his early one?
0: Excellent question. It was the later one. And as as far as I can remember, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm not even sure. It was very... Uh, common on the commercial market just yet. It was that fresh uh, and amazing to think that he recorded this as one of the very first pieces in his recording career and as one of the very final pieces of his recording career. So it was, uh, but I think it was the, I think it was the latter one. Now, I only heard him on recording. I think you heard him live.
1: I did. I was 12 years old in 1960. My older sister, Frances, who loved classical music, took me to a concert at Massey Hall, I believe it was with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and I think it was Walter Susskind. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think. I cannot remember what he played, but I remember being fascinated by his persona. To me, he looked like Shrouder in Peanuts, (laughs) hunched over the piano. Um, And of course, you know, he always used to, to sing along, which can be very disconcerting, but... There was just something about him that was mesmerizing.
0: And did he have the famous chair as well, too?
1: He, he did. <laughs> and that's why, apparently, he, this was something that he developed with his teacher, Albert Guerrero. I believe that was the man's name. That he felt that if he was down low and came at the keys, he produced a better sound.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. And apparently, he loved to sit 13 inches yeah, with, his, with his, his seat 13 inches above the ground. Now, the, um, I think the, the bench itself was 12 inches above the ground. So what he would have to do is actually put blocks underneath the piano legs, just one-inch blocks to get it just at the right height.
1: His folding chair that he used a lot of the time was made for him by his father. Because when Gould was very young, he fell off the ramp at their cottage and he hurt his back which might be one of his excuses for the way he played at the piano, but I don't think really. But there's a fascinating story I have to interject about this. He was playing in Cleveland, and the conductor was George Zell. And Gould came on, he put a little rug under the piano, and then he started fiddling with these four three-inch screws that were at the bottom of this folding chair. (laughs) When he looked up, Zell had marched off the podium and left his assistant... To conduct the rehearsal. He also let the assistant conductor do the performance the next day, but when it was all over, he turned to somebody sitting next to him and said, that nut's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> However, Gould was born in Toronto. Um, his mother was very musical, but so was his father. His father was a furrier, but he was also an amateur violinist and a singer. And his mother began teaching him piano when he was just, well, before he could even walk. And she was his only teacher until he was 10 years old. Um, And Ted Libby, whom I really like, is in public radio in the States. He says, what made Gould a great pianist, a strong mother-son bond formed at the piano, also made him a psychic cripple. His entire life as an adult, he was unable to form close personal relationships. He was anxious, obsessive, and afraid of crowds, travel, germs, And gripped by a hypochondria so severe, it led to dangerous forays into self-medication.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, people certainly had strong opinions about him.
1: They did. They either loved him or hated him. Now, he went into the conservatory at age 10. At age 12, he took part in the only piano competition he ever took part in, which was the Kiwanis Festival. He, of course, won it. And when asked about competitions, he said he didn't like the fact that it pitted one pianist against another. So he didn't like the underlying undercurrents, I guess, if you like, of a competition. And at 12, he got his degree from the University of Toronto, but he was also attending um, Malvern Collegiate at the same time. And then he began, his first public performance was in uh, Washington, and very few people attended And then he went on to play in New York and there was only an audience of 35 and the fact that they were there at all was because they had heard from people in Washington that you have to go and hear this young man and at the end of his time in New York City he walked away with a a recording contract from Columbia
0: and it was the I think it was the Goldberg Variations that he went on to record at that point and so started an amazing relationship with the microphone Now, this was a a relationship that he actually had uh, discovered early on in his life, isn't that right?
1: He did. As you you can imagine, he was pretty much of a loner, even as a child, but he had one really good friend, Robert Fulford, and they had decided that they wanted to communicate with each other remotely, given Gould's personality, that's probably not too surprising. (laughs) So they experimented with all kinds of technologies. And this is really where his love of recording began. And it's very interesting because recently I came across an article um, about Gould in Russia, which we will be discussing later. And it was written by one Robert Fulford. And I'm assuming that it was probably the same childhood friend. And of course, somebody has said that the recording was a natural thing for Gould because he hated audiences.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he hated audiences as much as the whole the whole situation, but he had a very small performance career, really, in terms of, of length, even though he had great successes where he played, uh, it, he didn't. Play for very long, and a lot of it had to do with this love affair that he had with the microphone
1: that 's true. he only uh, performed for about ten years, and the most concerts he ever did in one year were fifty and the year before the year before he finally gave up performing in public, he only did two concerts um, and he, you never knew whether he was going to show up or not, which <laughs> which was a bit of a problem. <laughs> One time he was going to play for Leonard Bernstein, and Bernstein came out and said, "I just want you to know that Glenn Gould is here." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, now he had a very interesting relationship with Bernstein as well, too, who who claims he was a great, great friend, as many of these uh, of our centuries, last century's finest musicians claim. That Gould was an amazing friend uh, and a, a great intellect and and um, always exploring, always coming up with new ideas about things and looking <laughs> at things completely differently.
1: He did, and that actually led to a little bit of a dust-up with Leonard Bernstein, <laughs> because he was playing Brahms. Um, I'm sure you know which one it was. The
0: first concerto. Because it's the first the, one? That's right. Yes, that's it. The D minor.
1: Well, he... <laughs> He had a set tempo that he wanted the first movement at, and a gatherer was very, very slow. And when Bernstein came out to the podium, he issued a disclaimer and said about the first movement, that this was the artist's interpretation and not necessarily his.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And how did that go for him commercially?
1: (laughs) Well, the New York Times wrote a scathing review, but I'm not sure that that would have phased Gould much, really, because he was very strong in his opinions about how he wanted to play things, and he wouldn't be deterred, I don't think, by someone saying, well, you know, I don't particularly like that. I, I can almost hear him saying, so what?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because he's quite an enigma with that. He, he says one thing and possibly means another because I have a feeling he was an extremely sensitive guy uh, about uh, people's reactions to, to what he played. And, you know, the, that story actually is very interesting because what he did, I was reading further about that, is he actually developed a very interesting connection between the first and the second movement. Uh, and, uh, that was what his goal was, was to, was to create a, uh, a unity, uh, in the whole piece. And apparently it took more than an hour to play, uh, which, uh, and the, yeah, which is usually, it's usually in the upper forties or early 50 minutes. So it was quite a, uh, quite an event, <laughs> but one of many, one of many. Um, so we're back to eight years, eight or 10 years of performing and uh, it, what are some of the other highlights of that, uh, of that performing career because he, he did play in some some amazing places?
1: Well, really, really interesting, and I could spend hours talking about this, was he was the first North American and the first Canadian pianist actually to visit the Soviet Union. and he went in 1957.
0: Oh, that's a that's quite some time.
1: And I don't know. I honestly don't know how he got that that job, because forget about, you know, um, he was unknown in in Russia. Nobody knew who this man was. It was also the height of the Cold War. I mean, Khrushchev had been threatening nuclear annihilation to everybody. There was the Suez Canal disaster. They had Russia had done this huge suppression of a revolt in Hungary and of course even musically as we know from when we were talking about Shostakovich there was uh, definite guidelines about what you could play and what you couldn't play and Gould was only 24 years old but his first concert was in the Great Hall at the Moscow Conservatory and there weren't that many people there because as I say they had no idea who this guy was but at the intermission They ran to the phones and called anybody who was within sort of walking distance to come to this concert because you had to hear this person. He had eight concerts in Russia and after this first one, word spread and his remaining concerts were sold out. So much so that in Leningrad, mounted police were called out to control the crowd trying to buy tickets.
0: Oh, my God. Well, that happens at West Bend all the time. We we have the OPP here all the time trying to control all the the throngs coming in.
1: (laughs) It's really interesting because Vladimir Ashkenazi said of this performance, you felt you were in the presence of a person totally absorbed in his strange and enigmatic world who was at the same time in total control of what he was doing. And the cellist, Rostoprovich, recalled, people told me, did you hear what happened? A pianist came from Canada, and he's, he's simply a miracle. <laughs> wow,
0: that's incredible.
1: So it was quite something. He gave a three-hour solo performance at Tchaikovsky Hall, at the end of which the audience applauded for 30 minutes. Wow. 30 minutes. But there were people that were shocked by him as well, of course. Now, you have to remember that... In Russia at the time, there was a prescription against certain music. So for example, Schoenberg, Webern, Alban Berg, these people were not allowed to be played. Um, and so he gave kind of a, a lecture recital to conservatory students and teachers in Moscow. But alongside Bach, he played these people. And I want to ask you a question about that, because I know that Gould was not a particular fan of the Romantics. He didn't really like Mozart, and he didn't really like Chopin. And truth be told, I think that probably he didn't play them really well either. <laughs>
0: well that, That's a matter of opinion, but uh, but I think I might agree with you.
1: So why, why Schoenberg, why these people who... Um, were considered and, and still considered by some to be very avant-garde. Well it's
0: very interesting you mentioned that in the in the Russian context about a society that is at that point was trying to come up with rules to simplify itself and to uh in a way and to reorganize itself because a lot of that was going on in society of course. Uh he was often asked, you know, what is it about Schoenberg that really draws you? And he says uh, I think I was first attracted to it because some of my teachers hated it. (laughs) And I adore that comment. I think that's a real uh, door into the psyche that we're we're sort of talking about. But later on, he said this. uh, The integration between line and harmonic balance is very apparent in the best of Schoenberg. Uh, In fact, one could say that the pursuit of that kind of integration is one of Schoenberg's trademarks. So that's interesting, it's the, the, that integration of line and harmony. Now, other ways of saying that are to say vertical and horizontal. So that if you consider music going forward in, uh, in, in a contrapuntal style, where there's many different voices happening concurrently, that's the horizontal. The vertical is the ensuing harmony that comes out of that. Well, Barb, we should uh, check into a little bit of the music of Schoenberg just to just to explore it a little bit. I think that would really be fun. Uh, here is the uh, third movement of uh, Schoenberg's Opus 19 suite uh, of small piano pieces. And the very interesting thing that I think in this piece, uh, it gives you a, a sense of a new language developing, if you think about this in the early 1900s. But it also is starting to do some amazing exploring, specifically in this piece, a different sense of polyphony where the voices in the right hand are to be projected loudly and the voices in the left hand are to be really subdued and really, really quiet. Now, when you think about it, there's a real relationship here uh, b- between this and the music of J.S. Bach. There's a wonderful contrapuntal horizontal flow, but also a beautiful, beautiful vertical harmony. And I think, so So the, there is a great, great relationship. He must have been very attracted to that, that kind of concept. But the other thing, just in terms of society, as you study music, you see these roles in music of complexity simplicity complexity simplicity and they happen every couple hundred years that concept of 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 that role is very similar in Bach's time as in schoenberg's time there was a return well It's that crossover point between culmination and the return to simplicity and the return to new rules.
1: Can I interject something here too? Like, because... It's
0: good, because I need to breathe.
1: Because a lot of this (laughs) is beyond my musical understanding. But it would seem to me that the romanticists kind of tended to want the melody line to be predominant.
0: Yes, there one, that the, the, the concept of soloist, exactly.
1: Yes, and where with with these people, there were layers upon
0: layers. I wanted to also mention Aaron Copeland and some of his writing. Uh, here's a great quote that puts uh, those style periods into an interesting perspective. The international aspect of 18th century music has often been pointed out. Constant Lambert, the English composer, once wrote that for most part, 18th century composers chose to address their audiences in a cultivated Esperanto with its roots in Italian. This is is an amusing way of saying that the classic composer wrote in a pan-European style, a style in which the composer no more felt the need of stressing his country of origin than he felt impelled to stress his own individual personality. And this is a huge comment, I think. Uh, that's the end of the quote. But this is a huge comment because uh, it talks to the the absolute quality of uh, of the music of Bach and of perhaps of the music of Schoenberg. But with Schoenberg, you also have this incredible expressionism that is within this. It's kind of a a white-hot coldness.
1: The thing about um, the talk at the Moscow Conservatory was that Gould had one condition, and that was that he could talk about anything he wanted to. And the hall was jammed with students and professors to hear a lecture with the title of Music in the West. But as Gould explained, the truth was quite different from the title because I gathered this group of composers were called the Second Viennese School. Right. And so he. And the
0: first being Beethoven and Haydn he- and Mozart.
1: Okay, so he played a lot of this music. And it says, this is a, a direct quote there was a rather alarming and temporarily uncontrollable murmuring from the audience. This is Gould recalling. Two older professors even led a demonstration against this music by immediately walking out of the hall. Students were undecided as to whether to stay and support Western culture or leave and follow their teachers. Most of the hundreds who were there stayed and watched in awe as Gould played Berg's Sonata, V. Bern's variations, and two movements from Krennic's Third Sonata.
0: How fascinating. You know, that that concept that there's a choice, artistic choice. Do you follow suit? Do you copy other people? Or do you do your own
1: thing? Well, and Gould said... About this, he. By the way, at the end of it, he played a, a selection of pieces from the Art of Fugue and the Goldberg Variations. I guess to leave them with the more accepted as as they left. Wow. Um, but he said that this was the most exciting and most memorable part of the of his whole Russian trip. But he said the whole trip was overwhelming and just a bit frightening. He felt like he was the first musician to land on Mars. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this. He told friends, you'll like this, in Toronto when he returned, that when he found a piano he liked, he asked that it be moved to the second location so he could use it a second time. And his hosts always agreed. But then they came up with a myriad of excuses as to why it couldn't be done. And in the (laughs) end, he said he believed Russia had no professional piano movers. Pianos (laughs) came from Germany and stayed forever where the men from the factory left them. It's really interesting because there was an article done. um, Well, also, there was a movie made. It was called Glenn Gould, The Russian Journey. And I saw it on Bravo. I think it was made in 2002. And it's fascinating because he is still idolized in Russia. And when you talk about Bach, um, it's almost synonymous with, with Gould. And students there are still made aware of his playings, particularly of the Goldberg variations. And I just find that fascinating because when you think about it, I mean, the man died in the 80s, just days after his 50th birthday. And yet here we are, like 40-some years later, and we're still talking about the impact he has upon students in Russia. I mean, I I just find that amazing.
0: Well, that was 1957 when he appeared in the uh, Soviet Union and made such an incredible impression that lasts to this day virtually. Now, also in 1957 uh, he was very busy in the recording studio. And I think that it's, it might be really fun to change gears into there. Like, I think that his reason for performing such a short time, uh, on the concert stage was that he, what well, he says himself, that he thought it was a great way to make some money. So he thought he'd do that for a few years, make some money. And then he would go, and then he would retire at the age of 32 or 31, 32. And, uh, and that's roughly what he did. And, uh, and so I'd love to talk about his, uh, his recording now, Barb.
1: Well, his, his impact, I mean, on the concert stage, you can say it was quite limited because it was only 10 years, but his impact on radio and television was immeasurable. I mean, he, he did all sorts of things. Um, he was, did a, a live concert for the CBC um, and that sort of started a long association with them. But from 1964 onwards, he used the medium of radio and television. And his love affair, as I say, for these outlets, arose partly from his fear of the stage, but also partly from his desire for perfection. Because when he was recording, he would do things over and over and over again until he felt it was absolutely perfect.
0: It's an interesting concept to think, is that a search for perfection or is that something different? Uh, I, I think it's a, I think it's a process issue. Well, being it a, is. Being a performer myself, that it, you know, there's a there's a different thing that happens when you stand up and you speak to someone off the cuff and you bobble along, and there's another feeling when you actually work on every single word and create a, a piece of art. That's, that's true. That's and it was perfectly formatted, and you know,
1: it was the technical aspects that he loved. He loved yes. the editing. He loved the whole recording process, and of course. He loved the microphone. And also it's because he liked being in control. I mean, he he was a control freak. Um, And one of the things that came out of this, like he he appeared on television shows, not just as a pianist, but as a guest, as a presenter, and a music specialist.
0: And even sometimes interviewing himself. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And he produced documentaries on people like Pablo Casals, Yehudi Menuhin, Leopold Sakowsky, but it was a measure about that control that when he was interviewing people, he would give them the questions beforehand and he would also give them some of the answers he would like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he got really upset with Yehudi Menuhin, who strayed from the script. And Gould tried very hard to get him to come back to the original plans.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, he has a, a series of uh, amazing radio shows that he produced he did. in his lifetime. It, well, he can, pre- can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I will. He, per- he preferred the radio to television, actually. And he did several documentaries for the CBC. The first one was called The Idea of the North. And he took a train, if you can imagine this germaphobe going on a train, but he did. <laughs> he took a train from Winnipeg to Churchill because he wanted to explore the idea of loneliness as, by experience, as experienced by people in northern Canada. Now, depending on where you read, he met and interviewed four or five or six people. <laughs> but when he brought it back to the CBC, they felt the work was too long. Now, Gould could be very stubborn, and he refused to cut any of the interview. And so he thought, hmm, now how can I get around this? And I love what he did. He chose to superimpose the voices above the music. And I think, are you going to give us a little demonstration of how this works? Oh, I am works? going to give you
0: a and I wanted to quote again from Gould describing that particular thing, because again, I think he approached these not as information sessions, but as real works of art to actually, again, it comes down to the process. How is information communicated? How is passion, intellect communicated from one person to to another? So uh, let me explain this. He says, quote, for example, at the beginning of the idea of North, there is a trio sonata in which three people, a nurse, a geographer, and a bureaucrat, are heard speaking simultaneously. The nurse starts speaking and then the geographer comes in and then the bureaucrat and then the trio reverts to two voices and then to one and the nurse is once again alone.
1: So it's really interesting because I feel that Gould himself would know a lot about isolation. I mean, he did not go out of his apartment that much in the last few years of his life. He slept during the day. He talked to friends on the telephone at night. So he would have an appreciation for what these people went through, even though his own isolation was probably self-imposed and not through geography.
0: Yes. Uh, I think it's also interesting to think about what happens when people do come together in Gould's life. The challenges that he faced, or which were real or not, or psychological or not, whatever, about things like playing in front of people, about more people gathering which is an incredible, a, a, a enigmatic to me because of, of the, the love of contrapuntal music. But I, I did a, um, an experiment here from a recording studio point of view. Now, in the last few days in isolation here, I have um, done some interesting explorations, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, in the recording studio. And I was really curious about this idea that Gould had about s- superimposing different conversations, one on top of the other. So I'm going to try something here. I'm going to play, uh, this, is a, this is a recording that I've made already, uh, and this uh, involves two pieces happening concurrently, just like his idea of the voices all happening concurrently. And this is a little bit of Bach and a little bit of Schoenberg. So that was lots of fun. That was the F major two-part invention along with the Schoenberg uh, uh, piece that we heard a little while ago from Opus 19, number three. Um, Now, the other interesting thing about the the whole recording thing that I explored uh, was a different type of recording of polyphonic music. And I wanted to go back to that recording of the F major two-part invention. And I tried something... uh, That I've always wondered if Gould had done, and many, many people do wonder this, if he actually recorded the voices independently uh, before putting them all together. Well, That's what I did with this. I recorded the F major two-part invention, uh, first with the right hand and secondly with the left hand. Here, see what you think. As those of you with really sharp ears can hear, it is not as easy as it seems it might be. And you know, as a performer myself too, and as a pianist myself too, it's clearly so much more uh so much easier to play the whole thing, even though it seems so incredibly dense. But anyway, that was that was a really fun experiment. The other thing that I think is interesting, and this relates Barb to our previous conversation of uh the the um the absolute kind of quality of classical music of of uh, baroque and classical music. Uh, and one of Gould's loves of of this type of music was the fact that it was transcendental of the instrument for which it was composed. And that is really a very much a romantic kind of an idea that the um, that the music actually included not only a romantic music, a, a very personal approach uh, and and personal comment, but it also was, reliant a lot on the instrument for which it was composed Tchaikovsky's orchestra for example uh, or Chopin's piano you can't imagine that as easily it doesn't transfer as easily over so I thought I would experiment with this as well too also as another recording example and here I put the D minor two-part invention into my Finale software program and had Finale perform this on the piano and here it is So that was kind of fun. And then I thought, uh, let me tell Finale to actually play this on a different instrument. So I, uh, I assigned it to an organ. And here it is on pizzicato strings. Now I wanted to go just even further out of the box and so here it is on steel drums.
1: That's so much fun but it makes me think what Gould would do if he had access to the technology of today.
0: Oh, absolutely. I
1: mean, it, he would have just loved it. He did other films, you know, he filmed a thing called The Latecomers in which he interviewed 13 inhabitants of Newfoundland. And then he did The Quiet in the Land, which was about Mennonite families outside of Winnipeg.
0: Boy, both of those are, are really deal with isolation.
1: They do. And then in the 1970s, perhaps because technicians at the CBC were frustrated with him, I read somewhere that in the studio, the person who had to work the hardest was the person who controlled the air conditioning. Because as you know, Gould liked to be warm. I mean, he wore a hat, he wore a scarf, he wore a jacket, he wore mittens. Once in Florida... When it was like very, very warm out, he was almost arrested as a vagrant because he was <laughs> sitting there dressed like that. Anyway, I think the other concern was the amount of studio time he took up. So in, the, in 1970, he set up his own editing studio in an apartment, and he would spend entire nights recording, cutting, and editing.
0: And apparently when he wasn't doing that, he would drive around Toronto. In his in his car with the heat full full blast and his hat on and his <laughs> gloves on and his and his overcoat on, and he would be and he would be listening joyously to the music of, Patulia Clark, who he absolutely loved, and not only Patulia Clark but Barbara Streisand.
1: Streisand, can we take a minute and talk about his piano?
0: Absolutely.
1: Okay, his piano was a St- Steinway C D three eighteen, and I gather the C. Is to denote it was made for use by concert pianists under contract to Steinway. I think that's that's right. That's right. That's
0: how it starts its life as a Steinway. And
1: D was to note that it was the company's largest model, nine foot across, 1,325 pounds. And it was a year old when it arrived at the Eaton's College Street store in 1946 to be placed in the auditorium. And I was talking to you the other day and telling you I remember that auditorium because Kiwanis Festival used to be there. And when I was in high school, I played the clarinet in an orchestra and we performed in that auditorium. My goodness. But by the time Gould discovered it some 14 years later, he'd spent five years looking for the perfect piano. The piano had then been stashed backstage. It was waiting to be shipped to Steinway for disposal, if you can believe. My and no one knows why Gould would have been backstage in June 1960. But once he sat down to play, he said he knew this piano was for him. It touched his soul.
0: You know, it's interesting because I, just if I could cut in, there, I know that Horowitz had a similar story as well, too, with his piano, which was in the Steinway basement uh, in New York. And as concert artists would go and try different pianos to see which they would like to use for their performances, uh, people would sit down at Horowitz's piano and go, oh, this is terrible. It's uh, way too light and way too bright. It's just awful. Time and time again. But to each his own. I remember my, my, one of my piano teachers, uh, Boris Lasenko. Uh, I brought him to see a piano I was considering buying. And I got in the car. We got in the car afterwards. And I said, well, what did you think? And he said, Piano? It's like wife. You must choose your own.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the piano needed a lot of work. And Gould knew a man named Vern Vern Edquist. He was an almost blind Saskatchewan-born piano tuner. But this man was as gifted at his craft as Gould was at his. And he restored the instrument to its pristine state. But tragedy struck because Gould was to play in Cleveland and the piano was shipped by truck. But at the last minute, as he sometimes did, Gould cancelled. And when the piano was returned, Edquist found its 350-pound cast-iron plate was cracked, causing speculation that the piano had been dropped. And for years, various attempts were made to repair it. But in the end, Gould, nearing tears, said, What has happened to this piano? I cannot play it. I cannot use it.
0: It's absolutely tragic. You know, you have such a relationship with your instrument. You know, it's quite a... You
1: do. It was an extension of himself. And so his last Goldberg variations were played on a different piano. And I think at home he had a, a chickering. I believe that's what he used. But that's not the end of the piano story because it ended up, I believe it ended up at the CBC... But its ultimate resting place is at the National um, Arts Centre in Ottawa, where I think two years ago um, a work had been done on it, and a Canadian pianist, a young Canadian pianist, played upon it. And then I think it now sits in the in the lobby of the National Arts Centre. That
0: was Jan Leszewski, I think. That, that yes, yes, that's, that's right. correct. Wow. That's, that's correct. Another brilliant young pianist. My and
1: you were talking. Sorry, you were talking about how he liked um, Barbra Streisand, uh, Patua Clark, but he also really liked Barbra Streisand. So his his taste in music was eclectic, to say the least.
0: (laughs) From Schoenberg to Barbra Streisand, that's quite something.
1: (laughs) And thanks again, Brian, for the opportunity to do this. Gould is such a fascinating character. And don't you find it? refreshing that even after all these years we can still learn things about him and still appreciate and there's so much of his stuff on youtube people go and have a look um there have been all kinds of movies made about him there have been conversations with him and they really are worth looking at
0: there's still so much to learn from him as you say and piles of things out there on them so again I, I echo your your advice to go out and listen to as much as you can of, of Glenn Gould and and really enjoy it and smile as you do so Barb what a what a delight as always to have you here um, and uh, we're, I'm looking forward to to our next one so we'll talk about that once we're, we're offline here uh, and um, if anyone has uh, would like to contribute to the conversation we would really love to hear from you. Uh, drop us a line at westben at westbend.ca here's one last little treat that i couldn't help contributing to the uh, to the conversation today thanks for joining us see you next time
2: Thank you for listening to music for a while this podcast was created on anchor fm and is supported by our galaxy sponsors finley and associates as well as our season sponsors the windswept group thank you so much for your support of our arts organization in this tenuous time it is really appreciated listeners be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be the first notified when there's a new episode posted this podcast is part of West Bend's Sunshine Ahead campaign that was launched at the start of physical distancing with the hope of bringing our West Bend community together in new and creative ways. So to see more of this campaign, please visit www.westbend.ca slash sunshine ahead. We would love your feedback on all of these new initiatives, including Musical Moments, which features snapshots of artists and their work, West Bend Kids, our educational program, and of course, this podcast, Music for a While. Please reach out to us on our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or by email at westbend.ca at to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for listening.